Welcome back into the Original Gangsters podcast. I am your host, Scott Bernstein. We are here in another Zoom edition with my co-host and partner in crime, the doctor, Jimmy Bucciolato. Hi, everyone. Uh, we got Ben uh, behind the glass, as usual, doing his excellent uh, uh, producer gig, keeping us uh, up in here in the 21st century, making sure that we're uh, we're growing fast and, and making sure that we're... Uh, we're, 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 we're dotting all of our I's and crossing all our T's, so thanks for Benny. And today we're going to bring on uh, a friend of the program, uh, a, a OG mob buster, Gary Jenkins, former Kansas City Police uh, Department OC unit investigator. And we're going to talk, uh, we're going to thread that needle like we love to here on the uh, OG podcast. We're going to talk some current breaking news, and then we're going to uh, go a little throwback um, and, and talk about some old news that ties into the new news in Kansas City. We're going to talk about the current state of the Kansas City Mafia in 2023, but we're going to kick off by talking about the recent passing of a very prominent Kansas City Mafia figure, William Little Willie Camisano Jr., a uh, definitely a soldier, Possibly a capo over the over the years, possibly a street boss, uh, a suspect in numerous gangland slayings dating back to the 1970s. His dad was the godfather of the Kansas City Mafia in the 80s and first part of the 90s, Willie the Rat Camisano. And uh, little Willie uh, battled COVID over the last couple of years. There was actually a GoFundMe page up. Uh, trying to uh, get money for his care. And he finally succumbed to uh, complications from COVID uh, about 10 days ago, I believe, or in the last week. And uh, Gary, thanks for joining us. And uh, let's talk about Little Willie. Thanks, Scott. Jimmy, good to see you again. All right, well. Give us your, give us your, uh, your, your <laughs> memories of, 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 of tracking little Willie and, and following him around the city throughout the 1980s oh, and 90s. That's a good place to start. Oh, and I have the podcast, Gangland Wire YouTube channel. Yeah, we'll, well, we're gonna, well, yeah. we'll give you self-promotion. <laughs> no, we're gonna, we'll, we'll definitely talk about that. And then uh, I for Jimmy's gonna kill me. I forgot to tell everyone, please like, subscribe, subscribe. and share OG <laughs> podcast on YouTube. Um, and then let's now let's dive into it. So, so yeah. Gary, you, uh, you worked little Willie, Mafia Prince, but was more than just um, a name, was more than just the son of a prominent mobster. He was the real deal, a guy that was very formidable in his own right. He was, he was. From, from day one, he, he must have come out of the womb being a member of the mafia in a way, but at a very young age, a very early age, he was around, he always dressed the part, he, but he was, he, he was one of those, guys that could be really successful he was one of those guys that when you talk to him and i didn't talk to him but i knew people that did and knew him you know he was personable he was friendly he could talk sports you know no no edge to him at all he was kind of open but when but when you looked in his eye and when i looked in his eye uh on the street he had this uh just this real cold shark-eyed look and if you look at his pictures you can you can almost see that sharp look in his eye. And he was, and he was hard to follow. He just, he was like a ghost. He was, he, he, what he did, he was pretty smart. He lived way down South in Harrisonville, Missouri, which is 
that's probably 60 miles from the North end or little Italy or, you know, where everybody else was, but then he would appear up in the North end and, you know, that's smart. I am giving away secrets here. The cops and the FBI, unless you've got a real specific case, you don't go out there because it's too much trouble. It takes you an hour to get out there. And then you don't know, well, when's he leaving? These mob guys, local mob guys, you know, you just sit around their house about the time you think they're leaving or be around the places where they might show up and, you know, at a certain time and they'll show up. This guy, you never knew when he was going to show up. And he kept a, at a house in up in town, an apartment, a, an old house and had it upstairs. I think, uh, I think the family owned it. And so he, he just, and he had other places that he would stay, women he'd stay with. And, and you just never knew where he was. He was here. He was there. He was gone. He was hard to follow. He was just one of those guys that, that, and nobody ever talked about him. They never talked out of school about him. They never even kind of like his dad, you know, they had that whole family, the Camasano family had this, you know, feared reputation. So people wouldn't just, you know, like kind of start running their mouths about him because, and, and he was really close-minded, I mean, uh, close-minded, close-mouthed. So, you know, he was, he was a tough one and he got away with a lot of stuff for a long time. So I, Gary, let's just give for, for the listeners and viewers that might not know a ton about Kansas city, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, the heartland, it's really the kind of the, um, the epicenter of the country. So you're kind of, uh, you're, you're Midwest, but you're also kind of down South. You have ties into New York. You have ties into Las Vegas. If you saw the movie Casino, Kansas City is referenced quite a bit. Uh, they, they were a real kind of sleeper in terms of uh, puppeteering, the, you know, the strings of organized crime in America throughout the, the 20th century. You had the Sevilla uh, mob dynasty Nick Savilla was the, the longtime godfather there. And so maybe give us a little insight on the Sevilla, uh, Nick Savilla, his brother, um, Corky, and they were kind of, uh, you know, the, the top two guys that were running Kansas City from, you know, the 50s all the way into the 80s. And the Camasanos came up under the Sevillas. Right, right. Yeah, Nick Savilla graduated to boss sometime by 1957 because he was at the Appalachian meeting out there with Joe Filardo, who was a man out of the prohibition era. So he, he was there to be introduced as the new guy in Kansas city, 1957. And he had, he had been the man for a while. He had really close connections with Chicago or his closest connections were with Chicago. Nick had, uh, had relatives up there and, and he just, he had gone up there to hide out when he was in trouble here, when he was a younger man and made good relations up there with, uh, uh Cherry No Joey, uh, particularly. And so he, you know, and, and he was closed mouth. He was quiet, but he was, he, he was political. He, he, he met Roy Lee Williams, who is the, was the kind of the most powerful teamster, uh, official in Kansas city. And would go on to become the uh, kind of the last international the president, president, the last mobbed up president, mobbed up president. And he only lasted a short period of time before he started testifying. He got uh, uh, COPD so bad, but but he turned him. They were they were sitting on a Democratic Party nominating committee in Jackson County, which is Kansas City, and, and that's how they got to know each other. And and you know, as teamsters can use the mob to you know, help put pressure on companies and, 
and the mob can use the Teamsters to get jobs. And, and so they, you know, they formed that like mobs did all over the country. They formed that relationship because they had a mutual use and, and Nick quickly had dirt on Roy Lee Williams and, and, you know, pretty soon Roy Lee Williams was his puppet because Nick was that kind of guy. He knew how to make puppets out of people. You know, the the godfather with the pulling the strings on the puppet, Nick was that guy. He was a master at getting people that he could pull the strings on. In Las Vegas, he he had several out there that he was pulling the strings on. So so Nick comes on up with the Comisano brothers, Willie and his brother Joe, were these these were the guys that that did the extortions for the mob and during the war and right before the war, they were the young guys that would go out and, and do the extortions, you know, bomb dry cleaners when they were extorting money from all the different dry cleaners in the city and, and maybe small gas station owners, they would uh, extort money from them. And then later on strip club owners, of course, and, and, and Willie and, and his brother, Joe did those kinds of things. And, and Willie had a variety of other businesses. So it's you know. Gary, let's just, let, let's just let the uh, listeners of yours know, we're talking about Willie, the rat, right? Who is little Willie's dad, right? I know. It gets, I just want to make sure everyone. Knows. So yeah. the Sevillas had the Camisano brothers as their, as their street bosses. And yeah. if, if you're, if you're someone that knows about uh, Detroit, which is Jimmy and I's hometown, the Camisanos were the Jackaloni brothers of Kansas City. Uh, Willie the Rat and his brother Jojo. And Willie the Rat was like the Tony Jackaloni. He was the, the face on the street. And w- when, when Gary's talking about Willie and Joe doing all this stuff, he's talking about the first Willie Camisano. And I'm gonna throw it back to you, Gary, but let's tell everybody how Willie the Rat Camisano got his nickname. <laughs> well, you know, there's there's always a lot of supposition about it, but actually, and I've heard this from a guy that, that really was in the know, and I saw it reported recently. It, it was actually, it was Willie Rats. And, and because he had a rat terrier and he loved for that, watch that rat terrier hunt rats and he would loan it to people that had a rat problem and the rat terrier would go out and kill rats. So he was, they became known as Willie Rats. Now, I don't know if, I, I think probably guys called him that to his face. I don't know. Well, I, like, I like, I like the, uh, I know that's probably the real story. <laughs> yeah. But the, the story that kind of made its way into okay. national gangland lore <laughs> yeah. was that he was known for killing people and leaving them in sewers <laughs> where the rats could eat them. <laughs> yeah, that's the myth there. The, the, that's yeah. the myth. It, it was his son-in-law, actually, a guy named Nigro. Uh, who had done a burglary, uh, just kind of a common pedestrian burglary and had a charge pending in an adjoining county, in a suburban county here in Kansas City, the, uh, a county that was notorious for sending away the penitentiary for a long time after they got a conviction of the felony. And and this guy was married to his daughter. And I, I think, you know, the, the story goes that he didn't like that and he hadn't treated the daughter very well anyhow. And they he disappears and they find him several years later down in a sewer tunnel uh, and nothing but the bones. And he had a gun on him and he had his billfold and, you know, things like that. Well, so what you, what time would that have been? What year are we talking when they... Uh, see, started? I think he probably, he, he disappeared back in the, I want to say the middle 60s. And then they found him in the, maybe the early, early 70s. 
Wow, that's some that's some real Godfather shit. Killing your daughter's uh, that's uh, Carlo, right? right? That's, <laughs> the yeah, Godfather, that's, that's the God killing your daughter's wow. husband. Wow, Paul Castellano, he, he took he did two of his daughter's people or boys. That's right. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. Jeez. So Gary, that's oh sorry, Jimmy, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, yeah, don't fuck around with the with the Don's <laughs> daughter. <laughs> So let, let's bring people uh, into the 1970s. And this is where Little Willie comes on the scene uh, as I think he's turning around uh, 30. He died at, uh, he was 74. I believe he was born in 48, yeah. uh, 1948. So uh, you had a situation in Kansas City where you had this huge renovation on the riverfront of a entertainment district that became known as the River Key. And a lot of restaurants and bars and uh, a lot of nightlife. And this was a very, very popular destination in downtown Kansas City uh, in the 1970s. It, it brought a lot of life back to the city. There was a lot of media coverage of it and uh, became you know, the biggest bar hopping area uh, of Kansas City. Uh, and you had a war breakout because you had a part of the mafia that was invested in it uh you know financially invested in the developments and some of the uh, bars and restaurants who didn't want the mafia coming in and, and running roughshod through the neighborhood because it would cut into their profits so that faction was led by a made member of the mafia known as david bonadonna and his son freddie was one of the big developers of that area. Meanwhile, you had the Sevillas and the Camisanos that saw this neighborhood and this entertainment district as just a uh, open season for going to extort all these businesses. And then also using some of this licensing that they were, uh, that the Bonadonnas were acquiring from the city to open up strip clubs and, and go-go bars. So you had the Bonadonnas on one side, David Bonadonna ended up making a alliance with an independent kind of mob group, the Spiro brothers. And then you had the Sevillas, but working, you know, the, the men on the street for the Sevillas were the Camistanos. And Willie the Rat was dispensing his son, little Willie, the one we're talking about, the one who recently passed, uh, as the kind of the main enforcer in this war. And you had at over a half dozen murders between, you know, 75 and 78, I believe, uh, Gary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was, uh, <laughs> it was a crazy time in the city. And, and there's a couple of buildings were bombed down there. And, uh, and Willie Sr., Willie Ratz and his brother Jojo, they uh, actually directly tried to extort money from Freddie Bonadonna. And, and that's when his dad, David, tried to step in, who was, David was a made guy. He tried to step in and and told Willie said you know you, if you hurt my son you got to go through me first, and that's when David ended up dead about I don't know within the next month or two months. Last time he was seen was was driving his car into Willie's garage. The door closed and then the next person that drove it back out didn't know how to drive a stick shift, but they got it out and they they found him in his trunk of his car down the street a few days after that. So. We're sure that he died in Willie's garage and, and the Spiro brothers. See, that spins off in a whole other, whole other string of that. We don't even want to go down there. You need a whole show on that. But you know what I think, Scott, what what's interesting about 
this Kansas City family during that time. You've got the Comisanos. They dealt with all the uh, the boosters and the, uh, the fences and, and all those kinds of pedestrian kind of crimes on their level, uh, on the street level, more like. And then you had Nick Savella sitting up there in his house with his brother living right across the street in, in much nicer houses than these other guys lived in, had a little nicer cars, had all the kind of accoutrements. And, and, he, and he had this connection with the Teamsters. And so Nick is pulling these strings and making these deals with Milwaukee and Chicago and Cleveland to help buy a casino for casinos out there and then get the skim coming back from that. And these guys down here on this level, they were not privy to that way. They were not part of that. The Spiros heard about it. And that's one reason they wanted to move in on that action. All that money coming out of Las Vegas and, and Nick, and he didn't hardly deal directly with it. He used his underboss, Tuffy DeLuna. Tuffy would be in a way would be above Willie. Willie was a man down here in the right on the nitty gritty in the businesses on the streets. Tuffy was, he had a mole out there in Las Vegas that he was talking to on the phone a couple of times a day, sometimes at least five or six times a week and keeping track of things in Vegas and, and, and being the emissary going to Chicago and talking to people in Chicago and carrying messages back from there. So it was like you had the executive level dealing with, the Teamsters and the big money and the more sophisticated white collar crime on that end. And then, but then under that, in the kind of the pyramid of a La Cosa Nostra family, you've got the Comisanos dealing with all these street crimes and all these boosters and jewelry thieves and, and armed robbers and burglars and, and all that kind of thing. So that's, that's how that was shaken down during that time. Then this, they had this little war and that it just blows up that river key. Willie, Willie Jr., he's in and around. He's, you know, he's like one of the enforcers. He's a guy that shows up and says, you know, hey, <laughs> you know, we need this done. And, you know, and, and all you got to do is, you know, they know who he is. Everybody knows who he is because everybody on that level knows Willie Rats. And then they know who little Willie is. So, you know, he's just got to show up and, and, and say some stuff. He's a big gambler, big, and, and, he, and he loved to play golf, and he was a great golfer. And he was a big hunter and fisherman. Uh, he was, uh, and he was just around all the time and kind of in this enforcer role. But, but he was more in the, like, during this time, we had a guy named uh, uh, Andy Mancuso, who he, I'm still not sure what he did. He had something to do with another murder of a professional thief named Curly Mitts. And right after that, he was playing darts with Willie Comisano Jr. one night. And, and actually, I wasn't out there that night, but some other guys were, and they were on him. They were on Willie, and the the joint closed down, and Mancuso left, and Willie left. But Willie, he 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 lost him immediately. They couldn't they couldn't find him, and then they found him a couple hours later somewhere at some after hours joint. And next day, Andy Mancuso, they find his body in a car. So that's. That's what I mean by him being a ghost, a, a, a slippery guy. You know, he, he slipped his tail, murdered that guy, and then showed back up again. There's no doubt. Everybody would agree that he murdered that guy. Now, you know, I uh, hope I don't get sued for this. He's dead. No. I guess he won't. But He's we, dead. We can't, he, can't, he can't sue. We, he can't sue. And, we can't and the fact is, <laughs> yeah, the fact is I, I was going over some old federal documents I had before this episode. And, you know, Willie the Rat was a suspect in 
over a dozen mob homicides. But Little Willie himself was a suspect in over 10 mob murders. Uh, I just checked that the the body count for that River Key War was nine bodies yeah. between 1974 and 1980. Um, and, and Little Willie was a suspect in the majority of them uh, on orders coming from uh, Willie Rats or, you know, Jojo Camisano or, uh, for the Savella brothers. Right. So can we unpack and, that a little bit more? Uh, sorry to interrupt, but I'm just curious, like, um, did the, um, it was Bonadonna. That was the, the main antagonist there, Bonadonna. Is that his name? Yeah. But then, but then Bonadonna gets killed in 76 and the, Spiro brothers um, insert themselves uh, yeah, further they, into the conflict. And they, they weren't made guys. They, they were, were just, not made guys. No, but they were right. Italian gangsters. Right. Um, yes. And and did they did, did the Sevilla Camisano side take any casualties in that war, or was it all against the uh, Bonadonna uh, Spiro faction? Uh, Johnny Green to borrow. He, he pulled into his house. He lived right down the street from Nick Savella. This is right. This is like the early ones in the problem at, uh, with the river key. He had a joint, which was kind of a B girl club, go, go dancers club back then. You didn't really call them strip clubs, a go, go joint. And he wanted to move into the river key and he was trying to insert himself in down there. And he was, he was definitely a Camisano Savella guy and because he was the last night before he was killed he ate breakfast after he closed his joint and jojo closed his joint he ate breakfast with them about one o'clock one thirty in the morning almost every night and then he'd go on home and and he had this pattern and and there was these two guys sonny bowen and gary t parker who were connected with the bonadonna and the spiro faction and so they they waited for him up at his house. And when he opened his garage door, he drove in. They just stepped around from the alcove, stepped in and, and from each side blew him away with shotguns. And, and we know this because Bonadonna, I mean, uh, Sonny Bowen started telling everybody. And he told an FBI informant guy named Mike Ruffalo, who ended up having to go into witness protection so we could out him and, and that, you know, hey, I'm the one that, that killed uh, Johnny Green. And come on, you know, we're, we got something going here. These Spiros, we got something going here because the Spiro brothers were telling these young guys, you know, hey, these Savellas and Camisanos, they got all the action. They're not sharing anything. Come with me. You know, they were creating, trying to create their own family. I talked to two guys that said, hey, he said, you know, come with me. And, you know, they, and that's what Bowen was doing. There's Gary T. Parker, who was just a drunk and a hanger on. Uh, it took him about another year to get him, but Sonny Bowen at Johnny Green's uh, wake, somebody came in and said, hey, Sonny Bowen's car is parked out here at the uh, Mr. O'Brien's at Armour and Broadway. They already had a car and guns and everything ready. They left that wake and ran out there and ran in the back door and a couple of guys held everybody at gunpoint while another one went to Sonny Bowen in the booth and killed him. That was like five, less than five days after Johnny Green was killed and he'd been bragging how he's the one that killed him. So it was, you know, that that was the only real casualty that the Savella side took was the Johnny Green. So this is interesting. You you guys tell me if the, um, I've only read one book about the uh, Kansas City uh, Mafia, so I, I don't know as much as you guys. Um, is the politics correct here that it starts off Bonadonna, Spiro faction, 
defending their territory, but then they start to become more ambitious. Like maybe we'll just go to war and take this whole thing, take this whole thing over. So got, it, after, yeah, go ahead. After Bonadonna died, right. I think that was the Spiro's approach. Okay. Bonadonna was killed early in the war. The war went on for another, you know, three years three, after Bonadonna yeah. was killed. As they slowly but surely killed off all the Spiro brothers, or right. we made a case on one, and and who was had a bomb that he was going to put under Tuppy De Luna's car, but then uh, he took his conviction and he went to visit a storage shed that he had, and some say that it was an accidental explosion. And others say that a couple of Savellas guys, and they bragged that they did it, they planted a bomb right out in front of this storage uh, shed that he had, one of those storage facilities, and they planted a bomb there. And when he opened the door, they set their bomb off, which then did a sympathetic explosion with this case of dynamite that Joe Spiro had inside there. And it blew, I tell you what, it blew half of that whole line of storage uh, spaces away. It was unbelievable. And by the way, that's a um, a Midwest thing, right? The New York guys don't tend not to do that. Like that's a Chicago, KC, Detroit, Cleveland thing. I mean, I know Frankie DeChico is the the notable exception, big big exception. But in general, that's not a New York thing. That's a Midwest. The Midwest guy, especially in the seventies, seemed to like the you know in the sixties, you know, going a bombing campaign. Yeah, really. Well, look, Gary, let's let's unpack it just a little bit more. You mentioned Andy Mancuso, mm -hmm. so. It's May of 1978, and both Andy Mancuso and his kind of his running buddy, a guy named Mike Massey, uh, they were like a uh, like a robbery team, yeah. shakedown team uh, that worked for. Well, I I guess it's at one point they were with Bonadonna Spiro. They might have been trying to come back uh, under the Savella Camisano, but. Gary mentioned that Andy Mancuso, I think they called him Alley Cat, uh, yeah. was murdered after a meet, meeting or a, a night out in the town with Little Willie. Within a couple of days, Mike Massey's murdered. Right. And then the week after that, and this is where we get into the Spiro brothers, uh, there is what is dubbed the Virginian Tavern Massacre. And this was when a bunch of Camisano and Sevilla guys blast into the Spiro brothers bar headquarters and spray the place with uh, it was the shotgun fire, automatic weapon fire. Uh, one of the Spiros is murdered. Right. What, what happened, they found out three brothers are down there, uh, Joe, uh, Mike, and Carl. So Carl, when they came in the back, they came in the back door and the, and the bar was full. This is a real popular neighborhood joint, but it was the Spiro joint. They come in the back door and Joe and Mike are sitting at a table off to their left. When they walk in and off their left, they see Joe and Mike. So they don't know exactly who's where when they go in, of course. They knew they were in there. And Carl is on its payphone, was over by the front door. So, you know, they, they quickly take everything in. And, and according to Joe, he left a letter when he, uh, after he was died, they released a letter to the star. And he said that Tuffy DeLuna had the shotgun and Joe Ragusa, who was another, uh, and uh, Charlie Martina were the three that did it. And, and Charlie Martina was an old school made guy, a peer of Tuffy's. Joe Ragusa was his kind of underling, the guy that he was bringing along in the mob at that point in time. 
So Joe Ragusa and Charlie Martinez spin off to the left where the two brothers are sitting and start shooting at them. And Tuffy sees Carl run out the front door and run across Admiral Boulevard. It was it was nighttime, uh, early evening, but it was nighttime. And matter of fact, we had a, a crew, a two-man crew that had just driven by there and saw him on the phone, went on down the street to check some other traps and we're gonna come back by. <laughs> and and then they turn they hear the call come out, but Tuffy chases Carl out the front door and pops him with the shotgun as he crosses Admiral Boulevard and he cripples him. He, he's, he's paralyzed from his waist down the rest of his life. They kill Mike, who was a teamster at the time, and they wanted Mike. Part of the problem the Sparrows had with the Savellas is they thought Mike should have a more important job with the teamsters, and Nick was not allowing that. He was keeping him pushed down, and, and Joe was just kind of a hanger-on. He was He had bars and had a job on the docks and things like that, but Brothers, you know, brothers against brothers, man. You be you kill one brother, be ready to better be ready to kill them all, and, and so that that really kicked it off. That was huge. So you had that situation kind of bleed over into the 1980s. Nick Sevilla uh, is jailed. He's convicted in the Las Vegas uh, casino skimming, and you have a passing of the torch. Well, actually, see, sorry, go ahead, Gary. What's kind of interesting about this is Nick was in the penitentiary when these last murders you were talking about, the Mancuso and Massey and Spiro Virginian situation hit. And Nick had had to go in from an old gambling conviction. And he did about a little over two years, I think. And he was just getting ready to get out. And the Bureau had a, a Tap one, of course, they always listened on the phone up there. They also had some listening devices when he would meet people in the uh, waiting room or the visiting room up there. And they overheard him say, I want all unfinished business taken care of before I come back out. Because he did not want to come back out and be on the streets and all of a sudden have a bunch of murders. He wanted this all done. And that's when these murders all happened. Bam, bam, bam. Then he gets out right after that. And so he doesn't actually see he's. He's charged and then things quieted down. Things you know, quieted down after that. It did quiet for down for a period of time. Yeah, yeah it was. There was this. Uh, there was this simmering, undergoing stalking and watching each other and trying to set each other down in a quieter place because you can't really do it because everybody's on edge. It's really hard to do. Uh, and Nick, see, he was convicted in the skimming, but he never served trial. He never went to trial because he died. The rest of them went to trial. But yeah, during this next few years, it's this you know, back and forth, watching each other and being real careful and getting electric, you know, remote control starters on their cars. And, and, and Joe starts on this campaign to kill Tuffy because they're pretty sure he was in the, he was the one in charge of that Virginian thing that killed Mike. And, and, and he goes on this whole thing on killing Tuffy with a bomb, remote controlled bomb, and it doesn't work. And we got an informant in it and he ends up going to jail behind that. So it's a, uh, it, it was crazy time. It was fun. It was fun for me though, but I mean, it was great. I mean, that's a, you know, for someone that is a, uh, a, a mob buster or someone that is, you know, is who, who's like, you know, the lifeblood of their you know, law, uh, law man self is going yeah. after uh, mob guys like this, that I can't imagine that, you know, this is, you know, you would write a script 
for your career. Like this, right. this is the right. kind of stuff I want to do. I want to be trying to break, you know, break mobs that are going to war with each other and, and causing havoc in our city. Yeah. Catch them in the act. Yeah. <laughs> Almost did one night, but they caught us. They, they, we got burnt, you know, it's really hard to do. It's really hard to catch them in the act. Catch him in the act of a, of a murder of or a murder, of a, yeah, of a murder. Tell, yeah. tell us that story if you can. Uh, well, we were, we were watching Carl Spiro was at the Virginian a couple years later. He's out, you know, he's, he's back out operating again with his, his car, with his uh, disabled license plate with hand controls on it. And first started following him. And we knew they were still after him big time because of some wiretaps at the bureau. Well, the bureau had these other wiretaps going on the skim, which they didn't even tell us about it first. And so they had information that they were really actively stalking him and we were following him. We're supposed to follow him and, you know, try to catch him. And it was hard to do. And he knew we were following him a lot. Most of the time, I think. And he was going to this one place over by the KU med center. And we go, well, what is that building? So after he leaves, he spends about three hours there. Somebody runs in and says, oh, that's a dialysis center. So, oh yeah, he's going to take his dialysis about every three days. But we're following him around, and, and he's down to Virginia, and it was like, here's what he did. He, he always had a gun around. We find out later. He always had a gun down in that wheelchair or somewhere close by. And he just sat at the Virginia this one afternoon by himself with his car. Prom and he even had, he even had uh, uh, what do you call those, the tag that said Spiro on it. The, the Vanity plate. Vanity plate. plate that said Spiro on it with his Cadillac sitting out in front. That was on the front. He had the he had the disabled tag on the back. He just sits there for like two or three hours. So Harold Nichols, Nick, and Bobby Arnold and myself, I think Tommy Jill Walker, all, you know, we're all around there. We're getting bored. We get together and we're just sitting up the street smoking and joking. And, you know, we could see if his car leaves. That's something that matters. We see Joe Ragusa's car go by. And so, so you know, we, we we sit up and, and then he Joe Ragusa's car goes by again. So oh, shit. So we 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 spread out and we get out around and we look and nothing. You know, nothing. Joe's gone. We go back and get back together. We're watching Carl's, you know, where we can see if Carl's car leaves <laughs> and smoking and joking again. And oh, this is boring. I wish they'd do something. And and, and this car comes by that we hadn't seen and had, I think, at least three people in it, maybe four. And, and they looked to be, you know, white guys and, and kind of middle-aged white guys. It, it was hard to tell, because, you know, we're block off. And, but they were kind of, I don't know, just had this alert look about them. And they drove by the tavern from uh, 7th Street down to Admiral. And then with, oh, who's that? And then they drove by, then they came back around, they drove by again and said, uh-oh, we better get back out. So we got back out and, and we started, you know, driving it around, getting, you know, uh, close enough to see if any, if that car parked and if they jumped out or whatever. I don't know what we would have done. I guess we'd have run in with guns blazing too. And and as I pulled by on Virginia, which is why they called it Virginia, on Virginia out to in front and then took a right, they came from behind me. They'd gone about four or five blocks and then came back in in front of the place. And I was pulling out from beside the place and then taking a right. And they were right behind me. So I'm driving along and I see these three heads in this car. And I, I don't recognize the car. It's like a, it's like a Chevy uh, Nova or something like that. And uh, just a real common nondescript car. So I, I, you know, I got my radio and I said, hey, 
uh, uh, you know, I held it down like this. I said, Hey, I said, you know, I think those guys, they're following me. They're right behind me. I'm going to Paseo. I'm going to take a ride. So I took a ride on Paseo and they took a ride said, Hey, they're still behind me. So they're like, they said, Oh, heck. And what we needed to do, we just hadn't got it together yet is get a marked car over there to stop them. And because we, you know, we've got jeans and t-shirts on and, and, kind of the you know it ain't this ain't the tv <laughs> this ain't beretta you don't go crashing into them and run them off the road and jump out with your guns blazing so we get a marked car over there and so they follow me and follow me and follow me and we get down to 12th street this is 7th street we get down to 12th street now i can hear nick on the uh calling back telling me he said okay i got i got a district car coming they had to get a regular police radio and call them and so a district car is coming and I get in the center lane and they're in the left lane and I'm committed to go straight. And, and I never forget. I, I just kind of, I felt eyes on me, you know, as I'm sitting there and they're sitting right next to me and I don't want to look at them. And I just kind of, as, as the light turns, I just kind of, you know, how you might glance. I kind of glanced over and there's Tuffy just staring at me and he gives me about a half a grin and they take a left and I'm committed to go straight. And, and I didn't know where other guys were, you know, I, I was hoping somebody would be there to take them, but they weren't. And they took off left and he just floored it and we never saw him again. So, you know, we, we came that close, that close to getting them in the act there. Wow. That, so you were, so you were made, they, they knew, uh, no, they, yeah, they, they burnt me, you know, I'm, yeah, here, okay. I'm a white guy. It's primarily a African-American neighborhood. We just around that bar and, and yeah. uh, I'm, I'm a well-dressed, not well-dressed, but you know, clean, you know, athletic fit looking, white guy about 30 years old 31 years old you know yeah you know <laughs> it was pretty conspicuous yeah. they stood out right so they knew right away that's interesting yeah, yeah. that's a fun so, story so bring us so bring us into 1984 and nick savella has died tuffy de luna who we've been talking about as you know the savella's emissary was tuffy de luna their street boss was was willie camisano but they were kind of interchangeable, uh, I think, in terms of trust factor. Yeah. Tuffy DeLuna probably would have taken over the crime family or Carl Savella if they hadn't have been busted right. in right. the skimming case. So they're going to prison, and Willie the Rat is being anointed the new godfather. He goes yeah. from yeah. you know street boss, enforcer, to, to boss. And little he Willie... Right, he, little Willie coming out of prison. Right, little right, exactly. Look, Willie the Rat's coming out of prison as these guys are going in, yeah. and um, you had some fallout from from Willie the Rat taking power in 1984. You had three murders that took place in uh, Willie Rat's first nine months, I believe, on the job. Little Willie Camisano, uh, who recently passed, is a suspect in at least two of them. One of them is that Carl Spiro um, uh, bombing in, yeah, in February. Final brother, yeah. Final brother, Final brother they brother got him with a bomb, yeah. But the more pressing situation within the Kansas City organization is these two capos that didn't want to get in line under Willie Rat's new regime. Uh, Anthony Tiger Cardarella and his best friend and kind of running buddy, you know, in the underworld, 
uh, uh, Felix Farina, who they called Little Phil. Right. And uh, both Cartarella and Farina uh, pop up dead in 1984 and the months after Willie Rats takes over. And Little Willie, again, is is at the forefront of, of that, of those murder investigations. Yeah, yeah. They were slick with that. I mean, there was no clues, no clues as to what happened whatsoever, none. Now, now, Tiger, I will say, Tiger might have been the author of his own demise. He he was doing a lot of cocaine. He was running around with this, some young girl, and, and he wasn't taking care of business. See, Tiger had this immensely profitable record store. Actually, he had... He had he had expanded where he had two out in the suburbs and the main one downtown. And they were all, he had all the boosters in the Midwest that stole record albums in which there was, you know, all of our record albums probably cost about 25% more because of these guys. Uh, they just, they just looted all these uh, suburban little record stores around the Midwest and, and would bring a truck, I'm a truckload, a, a trunk load of these big old 70s cars back in and sell them to Tiger. And Tiger, and he also had the uh, the ticket sales business for concerts. And and the story goes, he was he needed money so bad, he was spending so much on cocaine, and he was just uh, uh, probably gambling too. And he didn't, he wasn't that trustworthy anymore either. And one reason we know that they lost that ticket sales business because like $25,000 in cash. Cause everything was, you know, for the ticket sales, everything was cash back then. You didn't have ticket masters for ticket master. You sold them at the, the sold them at the different record stores and, and about $25,000 disappeared. And the guy that had that gave him that concession said, you know, you're, you're done with this. You know, we're not, I can't, you're not selling tickets out of your record store anymore. So that was a big piece of action that he lost. And when they found his body, his top, his uh, uh, pants pockets were slit, which is indicative, uh, indicative that the mob signed that he's been stealing. And then his buddy, Felix Farina, who was, like you said, was chafing. Up. They were the old school guys. They did the murders back in the early 50s and on up to the 60s. They, they had come along with the Savellas from day one all the way back to the 40s during the pre-war and, and during the war in the early 50s. They were the killers. They were they were the guys. They were the feared people on the streets back then. And, uh, you know, I understand that they felt like, especially Felix, felt like he has been dissed by the Camasanos. And then his, his best buddy gets killed, too. So... This also leads to questions surrounding another murder uh, in 1985 that I, I've talked to people, including yourself, and I think it's still kind of up in the air exactly the motive, but I think it's okay to speculate that another kind of house cleaning murder uh, in the new Willie Rats uh, mob administration in Kansas City could have been uh, Doc Dearborn, who was the, the head of the of the Black Mafia in Kansas City, who yeah. the, the, the Black Mafia had worked pretty closely with the Italians over the years. And uh, Doc Dearborn got killed in a drug deal gone wrong by the airport. Um, I, some people just think it was a random uh, robbery that people within the drug world pulled off. 
Uh, I've heard other people speculate that it was a result of Dearborn refusing to kick up drug profits and, and gambling profits to, to the Camisanos. But that happened in 85. Right. Um, any thoughts on that? Oh, <laughs> I got a street guy that, that pretty, pretty solid. I'd say he, he said, he, he, he didn't give me the names. I never did even go look to try to figure out what their names was. They were the nephews of a longtime booster who boosted and, and sold stuff to mob fences for a long time and, and went into witness protection for something else that he talked about. His nephew supposedly did that as a drug ripoff. Now, he was, this was in a place... He was killed in a place, it's an old hotel, it's an old Holiday Inn hotel, and it's been converted into homes for poor people. I don't know if it's government controlled or what, but it's, <laughs> it, it is not nice. It's kind of the bottom of the line for a lot of people. And, and he was in there uh, selling drugs out of there. So I, I don't know, it's, uh, uh, if he was, I didn't realize he was making enough money for him to kick up. Now he had connections with the mob. There's no doubt about it. He had those connections and he had been a very powerful drug dealer in the black community. So there may be something that, that I'm not convinced it was a mob. Head. I'm just, that. Yeah, there could be. I'm not convinced it was, but I'm, I'm open to the, the possibility yeah. when you, when you take into, con uh, when you put into context, the timing of it uh, was around those other, what I dub, you know, house cleaning yeah. murders. I want to touch on one more cold case hit uh, when it comes to Little Willie Camisano, and then I want to get into uh, modern day to kind of close it out with where we stand today in Kansas City. But the murder that I find most interesting when it comes to, to or alleged murder uh, in terms of a, a, a homicide that he's a suspect in, that I find the most intriguing was a 1988 murder of uh, a strip club owner and mob associate uh, named Jolly Roger Reed, and Jolly Roger uh, owned at least one strip club. Did he own uh, numerous? He had the Magic Touch Massage Parlor. And okay. He, he may have had that gold mine down the street, which is more of a strip club. But he definitely had that Magic Touch Massage Parlor, and he was he was a gambler. Uh, he was selling. I had an informant back then, and he was a good informant. Say he was selling uh, LSD out of that place too. Uh, they called him Jolly Roger, so he had yeah, a reputation hey, really. for being kind of a good time. <laughs> Charlie, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm dying for people who are just listening to the audio episode and not watching the YouTube. I'm, I'm all smiles cracking up here as Gary talks about the magic touch. Sash <laughs> 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 Parlor. What a name. That's right I'm, out of the I'm, Sopranos or something. <laughs> I was a young detective, and they had <laughs> some kind of a theft down there or something. They filed a police report, so... Me and my partner, John, go down there and, and you know, because, hey, let's go down and talk to the girls. So we go down and we, you know, we're, we're doing a follow up on this. It just, I was a larceny, burglary, larceny burg uh, detective. I was about 25 years old. <laughs> and so they're joking and smoking and joking with us and we are with them. But, and, and they say, okay, now you guys, if you can solve this, get our money back. We'll give you free massages. We're on it. <laughs> we didn't solve the damn thing. That's incentivizing. <laughs> yeah, that's great. But uh, My little so, bit of corruption. <laughs> so Roger Reed, Jolly Roger, was buddies with little Willie Camisano. And as Gary mentioned earlier in the, in the podcast, 
little Willie Camisano was a, was a sportsman. Yeah. Um, someone that was, uh, he was very good looking, uh, very athletic, uh, someone that was a really good bowler, very good golfer, poker player, billiards, um, yeah. and, uh, loved Darts. golf. Darts, Darts, yeah. yeah. Loved golf. I heard he was a, a you know, borderline scratch he golfer. Was. That's what I understand. So it's May, 1988. And there's some type of charity golf tournament out in Las Vegas. Little Willie had spent a lot of time in Las Vegas in the 70s and 80s. Uh, I didn't mention this earlier, but I, I will now. I know in some of the records that I was going through, uh, the FBI, even though Little Willie himself or his dad were not arrested or indicted in the casino skimming case, there were a number of federal surveillance logs referencing Little Willie Camisano being sent by the Sevillas to Las Vegas to discuss business on their behalf in in Vegas with whether it be the Spilatros who represented Chicago or uh, the people that were representing Milwaukee. There, well, Little Willie was spending a lot of time in Vegas and was doing business there on behalf of Kansas City. So he, he, was, he knew Vegas well. Yeah. Goes to Vegas with his buddy. I guess he, according to the court records, he brings along a young girlfriend of his um, who might have only been like 18 or 19 at that point. Uh, little Willie was 40-ish. And um, they, are, they, they play like a, a three-day skins tournament for charity. But while they're golfing for charity, in their foursome, they start betting each hole. So it's like Jolly Roger and Little Willie are, are one group. And then the two guys that, that they're in the foursome with um, are the other group. And at the end of the, either at the end of the day or at the end of the weekend, there was a six figure tab that Little Willie owed. Um, according to what I read, Jolly Roger was kind of more like, I'll do this if, if, you know, it's, you're the one who's betting, it's not my money. <laughs> and I think little Willie, you know, assuaged some of that uh, anxiety in May of 88 during the tournament and probably before the losses started to add up. But when they left back for Kansas City, they have like a between a hundred and one hundred fifty thousand dollars that they had to, I mean, under the you know gentleman's agreement that they had to pay back uh, these other guys. I don't know if these other guys were connected or not. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I, I've but never read a report on that. But by the summertime, or by the end of the summer, uh, Reed, Roger Reed, Jolly Roger Reed is being pressured to pay the money back. And Roger Reed is going to Little Willie being like, this is your problem, not my problem. And Little Willie saying, well, now it's your problem because I ain't paying the money. And by August, Roger Reed is found dead in a hotel room, strangled to death. And Little Willie is the top suspect to this day. Obviously, Camisano never, Little Willie Camisano never got charged with any murders. So this yeah. is all speculation. Um, but he was a suspect in, like I said, over 10 gangland homicides. And I believe the last murder that he was a suspect in was this 1980 hit of, of Roger Reed. Uh, Gary, you want to comment on the story I just told? <laughs> oh, I mean, that's, you know, that's the story we all heard at the time that he, 
probably killed him and then said, hey, he's the guy that owes the money, not me, <laughs> is my understanding. So, uh, which would be something they would do. I mean, those guys, uh, they're never going to pay off. Uh, and it was probably not mob guys they were playing with. So he was never going to pay these non-affiliated people any kind of money like that. And that's, that's, I mean, that's classic mob stuff, you know, Hey, it's not me. It's, it's this other guy that was playing. He's the one that's supposed to pay and, you know, and, and oh, he's dead now. Well, sorry, <laughs> too bad. And, and, you know, I just never heard any more about it after that. Just we mob murders once they're over. I mean, it's just like, even after Carl Spurrow was killed, I was talking to a guy who was, had been working undercover down there. And, and he kept going down there after he was killed. And, and it's like his, his buddies, you know, the, it blown up, but they like had some other little temporary facility and it was like his buddies, they just never mentioned it. Like it never happened. Like, Oh, Carl didn't come in today. Oh, I don't know. You know, I, they just, they just, they just like it never happened. They just walk, and then nobody ever says another word about it. They'll go around and gossip about it or anything for quite a while after that. I, I just look at the Roger Reed murder, and to me, that it sticks out. I mean, the other ones, and I, I you know, homicide is a homicide, and and I'm not, I'm not saying that murder's okay, but in that world, in that orbit, when you step kind of from outside the lines to inside the lines, again, I'm not excusing it. I mean, if you get convicted of a murder, you should go, you should go to prison for the rest of your life, no matter what the circumstances are. But, um, you know, everybody's on an even playing field. And if you're playing the game, you understand the consequences. And a lot of those murders that little Willie Camisano is connected to are murders that came within organized crime. And, and, and you know, cops and robbers, cowboys and Indians, but this was his, I mean, yes, Jolly Roger Reed obviously wasn't a civilian in the sense that he was a, you know, just a, a, you know, a tax paying suburbanite that, you know, never dabbled in crime. But this was a friend of his. This really had nothing to do with mob activity. This was, this was just a, a, a gangster move to, yeah. to murder a friend of yours because you don't want to pay a debt that <laughs> you owe that, you know, in all honesty, you, yes, that's a lot of money, but I'm sure the Camisanos could have come up with that money at that time. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, who knows, Scott, I mean, yeah. these things, they're always multi-level. They're always, you see what's going on in the surface, but there's two or three other things going on down underneath yeah. the surface many times. So who knows, it may have been more to it than just that debt. That debt may have been just the, uh, the thing that put him over the top said, Hey, yeah, I can, I will do this for those reasons, but you know, I'm going to benefit for this, you know, anyhow out of it. So you never know on those deals with, because no, Roger, the, he, he had been, you know, he'd been in the game all of his life. You know, he, he knew he, he bought his tickets. <laughs> yeah. That's a good, that's something that I've mentioned quite a few times on our podcast. And I, I don't know anything about the specific case other than what Scott's reported on, but Usually when a guy gets clipped, it's what I refer to as overdetermined. There's usually one catalyst that's like the final, right, <laughs> the yeah, final yeah. thing, but there's usually like you could probably find some other factors that have been leading up, leading up to, well, to this. I think the whole situation, and, and believe me, this wasn't this this investigation got steam. Now it never resulted in an indictment, but there were grand jury proceedings, and this was something that 
was an embarrassment for Little Willie because of the fact that it came out that he had this very young girl with him. He was yeah. married with kids. Um, and like I said, he was in his 40s, and I believe this girl was 18 or 19. Yeah, I, I don't um, now. So I never, there, was, there was an embarrassment factor, I believe, yeah. when news of this uh, started to, to leak out and grand juries were convening. And I believe that girl had to go in front of the grand jury. Yeah. I, she, was sure the, she, she was there that whole weekend and it saw all the interactions between yeah. uh, Reed and, and Kamasan. So she could verify that story. Yeah. You know, right. It wasn't just a story. She, you, right. you had a, a first person that could verify that story, which many times you can't, you know, nobody can verify any story. They're just stories. So yeah, that, that may, gave it a lot more heat when she could verify that story. And When was this again, Scott? What, what year was this? 1988. 88. Okay. And I'm just curious, Gary, because you know, I'm interested in uh, a lot of the theoretical stuff. Uh, what, what size of the organization, like the scale, like what, at this point, let's say 19, late 1980s, early 1990s, like, what would you say? How many, how many made guys at that point in the organization? Just as, as an estimate. Yeah. All the, uh, the original made guys were kind of, there was about 10 or 12 of them because they were on a list of, they got a percentage of the skim and they were all dead pretty much by then or, uh, in the penitentiary and just getting out and really old Tuffy and, and Charlie Mortina and, and he died not too long after they got out. When they did get out, it seemed like they, they just kind of went into senior uh, uh, emeritus status, shall we say, it, it seemed like. And, and we don't know who was made there. I, I think there was really some more making. There was this next generation of children and, and younger people coming up but there wasn't very many and, and there still hadn't been very many, probably, you know, maybe six or eight that, that really may have been made, actually made during this time. Uh, you got another Comisano brother out there, Jerry, and he's still out there and, and, and he's still operating. And, and you got Cassiopo, the old man's dead, but he's got a son that's out there that, that caught a case during this time for bribing uh, uh, some people in, in his business that were uh, doing some kind of reclamation and, and uh, uh, destru destruction of buildings that needed to be taken out to have this industrial salvage company. And he was, he was bribing a guy to get some contracts and he goes away and then comes back and he's got a strip club. And, and, and so that's, it kind of morphed into that strip club business that Robosti's got this strip club and, or a couple of them, and and I think they've got more around the Midwest. But you know, it, it's probably you know not that many made guys. I don't. He's talking, Jimmy. He's talking right now. Yeah. 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 It's morphed into. Yeah. 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 Time. Yeah. Do you think that's because um, similar to Detroit and Milwaukee and Cleveland, places like that, that uh, the Italian American community, for all intent and purpose, are basically assimilated white people living in the <laughs> suburbs, and and they're and they're like, uh, you know, the kids and grandkids become they go off to college and become or or just legit jobs, and like there's no like there's no like um, community where there's like uh, these uh, tough guys that you can that are that are uh, recruiting pool. Yeah, there's no recruiting pool because you don't have these like kind of working class uh, enclaves. Where where guys are hungry to 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 to, to make it on their own. That at, at this point, you know, the Italian Americans are basically just like any other group of white people living in the suburbs. And so there's no recruiting pool. Do you think there's 
there's yeah. something to that in terms of why it, sh why it was shrinking. And, and another thing happened uh, that we don't really think about is during this whole uh, Las Vegas skim investigation, all this dirt came out about their control over the Teamsters and they lost control of the Teamsters Union. The, the, uh, the Department of Labor put the Teamsters Union in a trusteeship and everybody, they had to run new elections and they, they really monitored them close and the mob lost their control over the Teamsters and the Teamsters lost a lot of their power because of deregulation. There's, there's a lot of different socioeconomic factors that, that, that go into this, plus the the young Italian guy, Tiger Cartarella's son, is a lawyer. You know, he's a well-respected lawyer today in, in here in the city, and he was a, he was a head of ACLU during some of these years at that point in time. But and, and so they lose this other power. So you don't if you don't have the Teamsters, you don't have a bunch of jobs that you can hand out to people. You don't have that you know that kind of patron kind of a figure anymore because they had a lot of Teamsters jobs. You know, you can go to to one of these guys, you know, go to one of the Sabellas or Tomasanos and, and say, hey, you know, my brother needs a job. And he can say, you know, I think I can get him on down here at Freightways on the dock. Just tell him to go down there and see Sal. And, you know, he's got a job right away. So, uh, you know, politician politicians running, he needs the support of the Teamsters Union. Well, you know, the mob guy can say, hey, I can get you that support. You know, I'll get you that. They'll I'll get those guys on board for you. And so they lost all that. And, and, and when you lose those kinds of uh, kind of quasi-legitimate connections that you can do things for people, then your recruiting, you know, is, is just going to hell because you can't do anything for me. Yeah. That's, so that's an interesting point. So there's, it, it's um, there are multiple variables at place that are in place that lead to the uh, attrition of, of, of an organization. But uh, I would yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Jimmy, finish. I was just going to say, uh, but one thing we know from like Sicily, and I know the variables are are, are different. So like a a comparative analysis, a pure comparative analysis is is not always <laughs> useful comparing what goes on in the U.S. to Sicily. But in in some of the families in Sicily, you only need you know eight to a dozen guys. I mean, some of those families in Sicily are real small. I don't know if people realize that. Like, like you, you only have maybe, I think in Tropany at one point, they, they said there were probably seven made guys left and it was still a pretty formative, pretty formative group because they had connections. They were tough guys. They had associates. They had a lot more associates, even if they weren't making a lot of guys. So I don't, I, I'm just saying it's interesting. It seems like Kansas city for a long time was still, still pretty important players, even if they were, losing membership over time. So I don't know if you guys would agree with that. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. They still had a certain amount of, of social power, if you will. I just heard a story talking about Willie, little Willie. I just heard a story about him the other day. These stories are starting to come out a little bit now from people. And, and when he got out of the penitentiary the last time, of course, you got to have a job. And so a guy gave him a job and in and, and a business that, that this guy – sold paint and stuff too to other body shops and and so he gave willie a job at minimum wage and he, he and he paid him for two years dude had a job had a regular paycheck come in the guy paid him and and he didn't get a kickback or anything but what he did he got a couple of really good contracts with other really big time new car dealerships two new car dealerships and he got these exclusive contracts to sell them these different body shop supplies. So 
you know, they still got a certain amount of power that see, that's, that's what, that's how it works. It's not always the, the, you know, the killings and the murders and everything. It's having these connections to get people jobs, to get things and to get politicians on to get power, uh, prestige within the community that, Hey, I know a guy, I can get you this, you know, that's, that's part of the, the deal. Yeah. Sorry, I was on mute there. Great point, Gary. Thank you. So let me, I'm going to, as we wrap up, I'm just going to kind of sketch um, what my reporting is telling me about Kansas City in the modern era. And then I want to get Gary's take on it. And then we can, you know, we can meet another day and, and get Gary back on here because we love Gary. And this has been a great conversation. And I'm almost uh, mad that we didn't get to this part of the conversation um, until the last five, 10 minutes. Um, because I think it's, it's noteworthy and it plays on what Jimmy and Gary just said, this is an organization while small, um, my reporting uh, says that it still exists and it still functions and it still makes money. And you have just like we've talked about this, uh, in a lot of different spaces, within organized crime as well as without, uh, or sorry, without, within organized crime as well as outside of organized crime, you know, globalization and, and, and just being able to you know, spread your wings and interconnect. And it's not all about being Sicilian or Italian. If, if you're someone that wants to keep the organization running, you have to have an open mind and be innovative. So what my sources are telling me is yes, it's small, um, but you have a younger generation. Now these are guys that are probably not ever going to get a button, but they because a lot of them aren't Italian, but they are working as a part of whatever this organization is right now. That there are a couple made guys that are in their fifties that are overseeing this younger group of mostly non-Italians that are in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. And these non-made guys are making money for the OGs. And those OGs, we haven't mentioned the names yet, but I'll throw them out now. Uh, Johnny Joe Shorantino and uh, Peter Las Vegas Pete Simone are guys that trace their roots to the Savella brothers, to the Camisano brothers, and uh, are guys in their late 70s right now that have been running the family for the last 20 years. Uh, I believe Las Vegas Pete Simone has been a, a underboss allegedly since uh, the mid '90s. Johnny Joe Shorantino, uh, according to to my sources and according to uh, I believe what what the government would tell you, has been running the Kansas City Mafia since the mid 2000s. Took over for uh, one of the Savellas or one of Nick Savella's nephews, Tony Ripe. Tony Ripe, yeah. But uh, Johnny Joe and, and Las Vegas Pete are guys that have respect around the country. And they might only have six made guys underneath them. It doesn't matter. They can go to New York and they can get a meeting with, the, with, with leaders of the five families. They can go to Chicago and they'll sit down with Sally D and, and Jimmy I and, and Albie. They come to Detroit, they sit down with, with Tony Lop and, and PT. Um, so, you know, I, I think that there, they have there. There's there's obviously some old school elements of it uh, at the top, 
And there probably isn't, you know, a situation where in 30 years, this family might not exist anymore. But for right now, there is a structure um, and, and there is a upward flow of, of, of money. And it, it's just like I kind of think it has been in the past. It's a sleeper. Yeah. And you got to look at the demographics of Kansas City. Kansas City is not that big. And these guys know each other and their families know each other. And, and, and I know, you know, just observations from people that tell me directly, you know, with a, uh, looks like a duck, walks like a duck. They meet together, a couple of different Italian restaurants. I see these guys sitting at the table, Frank DeLuna, Tuffy's brother, Johnny Joe Shortino, Pete Simone, sitting together, talking. I've seen, I've seen Pete and a couple of guys sitting together, <laughs> walking out of an Italian restaurant here and, and uh, with my wife and, and I walk out and I said, uh, you see those three guys sitting at that little table right outside the front door? And she said, uh, yeah. I said, what'd you think? She said, I, she said, I thought mafia. <laughs> I said, you got it. And there's Pete Simone sitting there, just this real quiet conversation with these two dudes. And, and I, I didn't know one of them. The other one, I found out who he was later. He was, he was a guy that, that has done some, some jewel thief things over the years and off and on. And, and so, you know, he's, and it was one of those conversations, you know, wasn't just a, Hey, how you doing? Kind of a conversation. It was pretty intense conversation. So, so just looking at that and, and they know each other, the families know each other and they meet together. So, you know, then they, uh, young guys come in, um, they, you know, they come up, they, they know each other. They all like sports. Now, I don't know what's going to happen with the sports book. we got an app now over in Kansas just across state line. Now, you do have to drive across the state line to, to use it, but I, I don't know how that's going to shake out. I think everybody will continue to want to make their bets with their local bookie because it's, it's, it's convenient here in Missouri. It's still convenient to, to do that. In Kansas, you might as well just get the app. You can't make all the little fun bets with your bookie. I don't think the quick bets while you're watching the game. So I don't know what's going to happen in that sports book, which has been, you know, since the prohibition has been their life's blood. That's that's paid the monthly nut for them uh, ever since then. Uh, they tell you another thing they're into, and you find this in other cities around the country is fireworks. Several of them are in the fireworks business. A lot of money. The guy told me he said you can make one hundred fifty thousand dollars in about a month's time. Uh, around the 4th of July with a great big fireworks stand. And, and I said, well, how come they all, and I, I told him, I said, I see this around the country. He said, said they do it because they can make so much money in a short period of time. And up until recently, it's been cash money. Just like why they like the bars. It's been cash money. So, you know, there, there's no more union racketeering. It doesn't seem like, not, not that I see. Um, so I, I don't know. There's got to be some kind of, you know, computer stuff as these young guys come up that I don't really have my finger on that. But again, it's this small group of people that extended families know each other and they maintain. You play golf around these guys. I've got a guy I play golf with that's kind of in that community as a civilian, so to speak. But but they maintain those old relationships. And, and all the people around them maintain these old relationships. And so that's, it's going to continue to go. I, I don't see it not stopping those old family relationships. And little, little Willie, um, who this episode kind of started about and who's kind of been the through line, uh, you know, he, he took a OC bust in the early 2010s. So it wasn't that long ago, 
got busted uh, in running a, a sports book with his brother Jerry. And uh, I believe there was another one or two. Martinez's son, Charlie Martinez's son was in it. Yeah, another couple guys that were um, either made guys or potential made guys or right. sons of made guys. Yeah. Uh, and, and little Willie had to do two years in prison. I believe he came out in 2012 and then spent the last decade of his life as a free man. Um, but, you know, little Willie was a part of that group that he's talking about with Frank DeLuna and Johnny Joe Shorantino and uh, uh, Pete Simone, you know, little Willie, if you believe some people at some point underneath Johnny Joe, uh, little Willie was running the street or whatever yeah. was of the street. I, I would say so. You know, got boosters out there and you got fences. Yeah. And, and I, I tell you, I can't figure out how that works anymore with uh, eBay and all that. There's got to be something going on, but I've just lost. I got a guy that he just gave me a knowing look. He said, well, I know. But he wouldn't. He wouldn't come forward with how it is. But it's, there's still got to be a lot of fencing activity going on. But it's just not the way it used to be. There's a lot of money they made in fencing activity with these boosters over the years. And I think Kansas City has developed, or they've always had relationships with other families. But um, like I said a couple minutes ago about uh, Johnny Joe and Pete being able to go to other cities, that it also because of the fact that they have these longtime ties in OC. Um, and even if it's the son of someone that someone in another state knows, uh, I've been told that there are some joint rackets that are going on right now uh, with Chicago, with Philadelphia, um, based on some prison relationships that were built yeah. behind bars. Yeah, um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all. I, I and that the, the Philadelphia stuff is more white collar and... Um, that I, I heard that the, the meeting of those guys came through a uh, Peshota. Um, I heard Vincent one of the Peshota, he's in heard, penitentiary now for a, uh, and, and that guy, he wanted to be a mob guy was in high school. <laughs> yeah. Whose, whose family, you know, dates back. I heard that he met some of the Philly guys and, and, and sent them, uh, you know, towards Johnny Joe and Pete. Yeah. And then I, I've heard that the Chicago guys have some type of joint book. Uh, I know that there's a guy uh, Gary and I have talked about it uh, off uh, off uh, air. I'm not going to mention a name, but I know that there's a very high-ranking Chicago mobster who has a very close blood-related um, relative who's making monthly, twice a month trips into Kansas City yeah, and has I've a has that. a place has a place in Kansas City yeah. uh where, where he where he stays when he's there. So again you you kind of you, you can do the math yourself on, on what's going on behind the scenes there. Yeah. But uh Gary this was awesome. All right. Scott it was fun. Jimmy good to talk to you again. Good to see you again Gary. Uh please uh tell our audience about how to uh find Gangland Wire and some of the other uh projects you're working on. Oh, well, just Google Gangland Wire and you'll probably find it. <laughs> and uh, Gary Jenkins got the YouTube channel, got the audio podcast. That's mainly what I do. I've still got a book that I did about the uh, the skimming from Las Vegas. Uh, what I liked about it, what I thought was cool was in the Kindle version, I got a lot of the wiretaps. And so with the Kindle version, you can click on a link and go listen to the actual wiretap that I'm talking about. So that's, that's awesome. That's kind of my uh, claim to fame. I've got three documentaries, or two of them on, on Amazon about these things we've been talking about. The skimming is gangland wire. And then the mob war is uh, uh, Sabella. It's brothers against brothers, the Sabella Spiro war. 
So that's uh, that's my that's favorite my one. Sh shameless self promotion. That's the one everybody likes. God, I, I I must have gotten a little better as I did movies all along because that's the one that 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 keeps keeps going for me in in Amazon. It's still going pretty decent. And you Amazon. know, Gary, to, to to just kind of plug Gary's stuff more. You know, in in that doc, he does a great job of uh, his um, his graphics in that doc because uh, you know a lot of times we're and I mention this a lot when we're when I feel like we're losing the audience. We, we mention a lot of names and a lot of places yeah, and a lot yeah. of dates, and sometimes it can get confusing for people. For people, but in Gary's doc, he does a great job with his graphics, um, letting people know who's who and what what things look like, uh, kind of from a thirty thousand view and where things were situated. Um, and I, I that was my you know in terms of digesting it. I thought that was a, a big feather in your cap in terms of your storytelling on that. Well, thank you, Scott, because that's that's something I really worked at because I know the problem is you throw out too many names and people get confused and they get lost. So I, I minimize the names just to the most important people and then use some graphics yep. to show that's who they are. And this is then pictures of them. And, and then when they got killed, you know, put an X through it. And and so we, you know, keep track of, uh, you can't tell a, who's a player without a scorecard. So I tried to keep the scorecard out there. Final if, post. Go, go ahead, Jimmy. Yeah. I was just going to say uh, also, if you like this episode, dig into our archives because we've had Gary on before where we, where we pretty much just talked about Las Vegas and his investigations with the, um, you know, the Vegas skim. So if you like that topic and you want to hear more from Gary having a conversation with us, please check out our um, episode on uh, taking down the mob in Vegas with Gary. Yeah, so just to tease it real quick uh, about our, our previous episode, if you like the movie Casino, Gary played a big role in that investigation that brought down that whole uh, mob skimming racket in Las Vegas. If you remember the scene, it's, a, it's one of my favorite scenes, where um, Artie Piscano, who's supposed to be the underboss of Kansas City, I mean, yeah. he, he's yeah. a fictional character. Yeah. Right. Uh, but Robert De Niro is doing a voiceover and he's talking about how they had a bug in, in, well, in real life, it was a restaurant. In the movie, it was a, um, a market. He's like, we have a bug in that place looking for, uh, you know, or the cops had a bug in that place looking for information on a murder from God knows when, about God knows who. And they're not looking about, they're not looking anything related to Las Vegas. But all of a sudden, the guy on the wire starts talking, and the and the people on the other end of the wire, one of them being Gary, is, way, is saying, wait, 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 is he talking about stealing money from Las Vegas? Is he talking about them having ownership in these casinos? So they actually show that in the movie. So yeah. Gary Gary talks all about that in our last um, interview. So Gary, you know, Gary's, uh, you know, is, is famous. He's uh, <laughs> his fame precedes him whenever he goes in law enforcement service. But the final footnote I want to throw in there, and this is actually kind of a sad footnote, and I just I should have brought it up earlier. But um, the kind of final footnote to that River Key War was that uh, David Bonadonna's son, uh, Freddie Bonadonna, who was the the big businessman that was developing uh, River Key and who eventually had his dad murdered because of stuff that I guess he was doing. He felt very guilty about it. He ended up testifying um, for the federal government and he was so guilt ridden over his dad dying, his own testimony um, that he ended up 
killing himself. Right. And so that's really kind of a, a it, it just encapsulates so much about that whole tragic situation um, that, uh, you know, the, the final kind of chapter of that is not a, a murder uh, or a killing. It's one of these players or participants taking his own life because he couldn't handle with, he couldn't live with the stuff that he had experienced or taken part in or so. Yeah. Thanks right, for finish. Th thanks for uh, finishing <laughs> on a high note, Scott. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I have a dark no. sense of humor. <laughs> so, so thank you so much. This was great. Right. Thank you, Gary. Right. Thank you uh, to the audience. Thank you, Ben, for uh, Jimmy. I'm Scott Bernstein. We'll see you next week on the OG Out.